Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Allen, and today we'll be looking at a book from Rutledge, World Yearbook of Education 2012, Policy Borrowing and Leading in Education. And the editors of this edition are Gita Steiner-Thompson, professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, where I happen to be at today, and Florian Waldo. This book provides a vast chronicle of policy borrowing or traveling reforms across the world, really crisscrossing time, space, fields, borders, you name it. Uh, Quite interesting in that regard, things can jump around. And and this is really why the book is handy. It covers such a wide array of subjects, uh, but has such a strong focus and theme that I really think it it is an interesting read. And so without much further ado, let's welcome my guest today, uh, Gita. Thank you for joining me all the way from Kurdistan. I do appreciate it. I know it's late there. Thank you very much. And if maybe you could just tell me a little bit about sort of your, your academic path. Like how did you get interested in education, international education, comparative education? How, how did that come about? Well, Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the series. It's a great pleasure. And I hope that the technology doesn't make it difficult to communicate, but no. let's just try. <laughs> okay. The book actually is in the series of Yearbook of Education, and maybe I should say a little bit about the series, because that also explains the topic and mm-hmm. explains also why I got involved in Absolutely. it. The World Yearbook of Education, we call it almost an institution in comparative education. It was founded, established in 1965 by Berede, who was also Loris at Teachers College, Columbia University, and it is like the series in comparative Mm. education. And it's one of the few books that is really spread globally. Mm. So I think every major education research library in the world has subscribed to that series. And Mm. partly because it's an old series, of course, but also because the um, authors that write in the series are from different parts of the world. So there's an international comparative perspective by definition in the book. And that's why it's appealing to comparativists in education research. And that's why I got involved into the series. So it happens to be that I'm both a series co-editor with Jennifer Oscar. Terry Seton and Julia Allen. They are the series co-editors. And for this particular title, I'm also the co-editor with Florian Valdor. Florian, in the meantime, changed universities. He's not that university. He's at the Humboldt University in Berlin. And and maybe I should say something, if it's okay, on policy borrowing and lending. Absolutely. The title of the book is called Policy Borrowing and Lending. This is a field in comparative education that we say basically legitimizes, justifies 
or is the foundation actually of comparative education. What I mean to say is when, when individuals are interested in comparative education in the applied side, they usually are interested to borrow ideas or reforms or uh, practices from one country to another country and import it. Mm-hmm. And there are two types of research in this field. A very applied one, which is nowadays associated with best practices, what can we learn from experiences in other countries, what can we borrow, what can we import, you know, very pragmatic and sometimes also naive because the assumption is that you something that works in one context will also work in another. But nevertheless, it's an important part of comparative education. We should not downplay it. It's an important part of applied comparative education mm-hmm. to analyze systems and look at differences and similarities, trying to understand what works in one context and what doesn't work in another. That's the applied side. And then there's this whole group of scholars in comparative education that does not only look at the applied side, but analyzes why is it that reforms are borrowed at what particular time, in particular context, mm-hmm. is borrowing likely to occur? Why are some ideas and practices borrowed and others are not? Why are some reforms borrowed that clearly do not work, even Mm -hmm. not in the original context. All these kinds of things, we call them our analytical questions. Mm -hmm. They are are part of foundational research in comparative education. And the reason why we call this foundational research is because it gives us ideas on how the policy process functions, or how education reform Function. And nowadays, in the era of globalization, policy borrowing has become the rule rather than the exception. So much so that some authors say whenever there is a new reform being launched, one has to ask, has it been borrowed from somewhere else? Mm-hmm. That's how widespread policy borrowing is. It's sometimes just discursively, it's sometimes just like a label or sometimes just like a reference. Mm-hmm. And the actual reform is not borrowed, but sometimes it's also bits and pieces that are being borrowed. Having said that, there are two different uh, groups that look into policy borrowing and lending. The more applied ones that are into best practices, looking at international standards, etc., looking at the experiences elsewhere, and the other group, and um, which is now the group that I'm working in in this book that analyzes the phenomenon of policy borrowing and lending and tries to to develop theories that then will be used for comparative policy studies. And if you may have noticed in the book, we switch back and forth between comparative education and comparative policy studies because this book, this volume is supposed to be a contribution to comparative policy studies, uh, looking at um, the policy process and contributing to theories in policy studies from an international comparative perspective. Right. This was a long winded answer to a short question that you had. No, that's perfect. That's that's absolutely perfect. And uh, 
I guess maybe two two parts of the question. Can you maybe and you kind of got into I think starting into a little bit, but um, some of the authors that you that you have in here, you you kind of talked about uh, the difference between sort of the first generation, second generation, and third generation of, of scholars studying policy borrowing. Um, so you can kind of talk about what what maybe that means and, and how that sort of breaks down and how you decide to sort of uh, recruit some of these writers for, for this particular model. I would say there are like three types of uh, scholars or authors I contribute. Those that are like hardcore comparative policy studies mm. or comparative education. And I would say Florian and I are one of, you know, belong there, but also others that are interested in the policy process mm-hmm. and from a comparative perspective. For instance, Christian Marois, uh, who is in Francophone Canada, he's very known on his work on non-state actors in education. And he looks into the theory of the post-bureaucratic state that encourages uh, non-state actors, both as backstage advisors, but also looks at networks of actors that influence governments. Mm-hmm. And part of that is also in an international comparative perspective, NGOs and donors, they are all part of these non-state actors that really have become important. Mm-hmm. In the OECD countries, of course, OECD has had that role, but also um, you know other agencies, but primarily OECD. In developing countries, the World Bank and UNESCO and the donor agencies were non-state actors. Interestingly, OECD is now also expanding in developing countries. So mm-hmm. the non-state is like more and more, the line is blurred between non-state actors in the first world and in the third world, right. which is an right. interesting phenomenon that is also explored. So that's the first group of contributors that are like, you know, comparative policy studies, policy comparativists coming either coming from comparative education or from policy studies and then adding the two. The second group of researchers are renowned scholars in globalization mm-hmm. studies. Because once you look at transnational policy borrowing and lending or traveling reforms, reforms that travel from one country to another, and the whole web of policy actors that interact, you come, you you get into the territory of globalization studies. Mm-hmm. And scholars such as Susan Robertson and Roger Dale are big names in this field, but also Noah Sobe. Uh, I'm just looking at um, sure. uh, the group of actors. And, uh, you know, Jeremy Raffalai also. So there are a couple of scholars that uh, wrote in this uh, field. So the first group, actually, I forgot to mention um, uh, Jeff Whitty, who also contributed, mm. writes a lot on policy right. studies. Um, the second group on globalization studies is also Jason Beach, who is based in Argentina. He wrote specifically also on policy borrowing and lending, and I would count him somewhere between the second and the first group. Then there's a third group that are policy analysts looking at specific phenomenon. The person that comes to mind is here, uh, Linda Chisholm. She's based in South Africa. She's uh, like a big name in outcomes-based education from a critical perspective. Mm -hmm. 
South Africa, education reform, other colleagues that are like, I would say, topic specialists within policy studies. It's Philip Gonon, who's based in Switzerland at the mm -hmm. University of Zurich. He is a big name in vocational technical education, mm -hmm. and he looks how specifically vocational technical education has been influenced by ideas and concepts borrowed from other education systems. Mm -hmm. Or Motoko Akiba, she's a big name in teacher policy. Mm -hmm. Again, she's a topic specialist on, uh, with specific, specific focus on teacher policy. Right. So we have these three kinds of scholars, comparative policy studies slash comparative education. The second group, globalization studies, experts, and I admit there's an overlap between the first and the second. Certainly. And then the third one is some of them domestic, some of them international topic specialists mm -hmm. that look at specific policies and see how they've been influenced or not by policies and developments in other education right. systems. Right. And um, all of them are, so it's a book that's quite coherent because mm -hmm. we're we knew what we wanted to write the book about, and we reached out to scholars who we knew already worked on that field. So we had a concept in mind trying to document the most recent developments in the field of policy borrowing and lending. Because as I said in the beginning, policy borrowing and lending, is, you know, in practice it's like 300 years old in comparative education because it's the applied field of comparative ed. And as a preoccupation of comparative education research, I would say it's like the last 20 years mm. uh, that has become like a topic of analysis, or maybe even longer. Yeah. But like the big names, the first generation scholars are like Brian Holmes, uh, David Phillips, Jürgen Schrieber, they are the first generation scholars who analyze the phenomenon. Right. I would count myself, I'm a little bit younger, I would count myself a second generation. All right. Uh, comparativist who looks at the phenomenon and ana analyzes it. And there are many other second generation authors here, or the uh, co editors actually are right. also second generation, like uh, Jennifer Oscar at Oxford, or Terry Seddon, who was at Monash and now is at the Catholic University mm -hmm. in Australia. They are also second generation analysts of Pauline uh, and then. Very good. And I must oh, talk to you, the younger generation. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, go, go ahead if you, if you well, like. I, I mean, I tried to capture the introductory chapter with the four new developments. Right. Uh, some of us, but specifically also the younger generation, or the, and I don't mean an age, I mean like not younger generation of scholarship is happening. The backup is transatlantic transfer between the UK and the United States during the Reagan and Thatcher administration. Mm -hmm. As you may recall, there was zillions of books written on that issue. Uh, Chop and Moe at that time wrote about what should the Americans should learn about the UK experiment with choice, and it was the time of the neoliberal reform. So mm -hmm. the reference to the other education system and usually they were positive at that time, like, you know, what works in the UK may also work in the US and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Because that's how the whole neoliberal movement or market-oriented or quasi-market-oriented movement uh, 
in education started. Right. So for the longest time when uh, scholars did research on positive borrowing and lending, it was always bilateral. It was like learning from one other country. So for instance, the whole choice movement, usually the references were made to the UK because it was one of the early models or outcomes-based education. Australia and New Zealand were usually the reference societies. So when I say that was the first point, there is now a move away from bilateral references to international reference frames. Mm -hmm. And it's not anymore that we say, you know, let's look at Chile for vouchers or let's look at, you know, New Zealand. For that. So it's more and more more broadly made references to international standards rather than experience from particular countries. Right. That in itself is a very interesting phenomenon because everyone talks about international standards and nobody knows what they are. <laughs> so for, they have become like an empty vessel and that's actually great for policy borrowing. The emptier a vessel, the better it is for borrowing because every everyone can fill it with their own meaning, right. Right. their own, uh, can project ideas into it. So, for instance, uh, Keita, Takayama, and Florian Waldo, they did very interesting research on uh, how one and the same education reform or system or practices is interpreted differently. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the reference to Finland is completely different where the Korean explain why the Finnish education system is a success as opposed to the Japanese, as opposed to the German. Mm -hmm. And what happens in those international references or bilateral, bilateral reference is that projections of one's own system is made into someone else's education system. Right. And that way of looking at policy borrowing is very important and that actually that's a framework that most of the authors in this volume share. For us, possible borrowing is not something that is out there, but it's something, in order to understand why borrowing takes place, we have to understand the local policy context. We have to understand what makes it necessary at a particular moment and time that policy borrowing or references to experiences in other countries or broadly, in this case, international references are made. Mm -hmm. And it has more to do with protracted policy situations where there's a need for consensus building, for coalition building, and in the absence of this coalition, references are very often made to experiences in other countries. Mm -hmm. And that becomes like a stamp of approval and actually a coalition builder because experiences from other countries are come across sometimes as apolitical, so they help to build coalitions among groups that otherwise would not agree on a reform. Right. So, you know, this whole German tradition of Nicholas Luhmann with system theory, he talks about Zusatzsinn, like it gives additional meaning, and we would say in English, it gives leverage to to generate reform pressure right. in direction of a new reform. So that's the, the first one was the shift away from bilateral references to international references. Mm -hmm. And international references are also best practices. Nowadays, people don't talk about, except for maybe Singapore and Finland, 
Nobody talks about one education system. Mm -hmm. We always talk about international standards, about best practices, and of course, you know, PISA mm -hmm. and this kind of international student achievement studies. They're all about extracting system variables that demonstrate what high-performing countries do to um, to uh, improve student learning. Mm -hmm. And once this is done, they come across as international standards. Right. So the second uh, new thing is to understand the logic of systems and cases. And I briefly spoke about it just now that this is what this group of scholars shares. We are trying to understand. We use basically policy borrowing and lending as a lens mm -hmm. to what is happening in a local policy context. And part of the theory is that policy borrowing is more likely to occur, occur when there's a shift in government, when there's a need mm -hmm. for new coalitions, for new ideas, where there is no option to look back and borrow from one's own past to re revitalize all reforms. A lot of reforms that are done in a country are actually uh, recycling or revitalization of old ideas with slightly different uh, focus. Right. And then the third one is the methodological repercussions of policyscapes. This is the one thing that um, a term that uh, Stephen Carney mm -hmm. called policyscapes. And there are other terms in the meantime that also came up that I also like a lot. Uh, the most recent uh, two, two come to mind here. One is global education policy. This is a term that Tony Verger is using, global education policy, and his question that he consistently asks in his publications, which I find a very important research question, is why do governments buy into or buy global education policy? Mm -hmm. Because it's a choice. It's a choice of national governments and stakeholders and interest groups to buy into or borrow policies. Right. That's why do they do that? At what particular moment? And that again, I mean, the question itself is a combination of the second and the third point. The second point being the importance of understanding local context. Mm -hmm. Because that explains why policy borrowing actually happens. Right. And the other term, so policyscapes is a good term, global education policy is a good term, and the third ter good term I like is by Roger Dale, mm -hmm. and he's one of the authors. They talk about Globally structural, globally, as like a tongue twister, globally, globally structured national education policy. It's like they come across as national education reforms, but there is a bigger global script right. that offers itself. And they are like, right, of course, from a critical perspective, and that global script is when you look at neoliberal. Mm -hmm. It is like, it's not a mutual script. Mm -hmm. And there are you know, specific actors that also promote that script. And actually the next, uh, the 2016 World Yearbook of Education by Routledge will deal with one of the big actors of 
that global script and these are businesses. Oh. So the 2016 volume will be about the global education industry. Because for the global education industry, it's only lucrative to be in education if there is a global script. Otherwise, there are too many singular solutions mm -hmm. that don't attract businesses and don't generate right. profit. But once you have standards, and once you have an agreement of what best practices are, then businesses really move in. And that's what we've seen, that standards really benefit businesses because they can sell a whole package uh, rather than you know, individually tailored uh, reforms and policies. Then lastly, the new phenomenon that actually I think I already mentioned briefly, but let me just say it again. The, a couple of scholars, such as Takayama or Valdo, who are deciphering projections in cross-national policy attraction. Mm -hmm. So they don't take it at face value that you know German policymakers, you know, referring to Finland. Finland is always used as an example. So they are trying to understand why are they focusing on that particular aspect of the Finnish education system, yeah. and why are the Germans focusing on a different aspect than the Japanese. So at the end of the day, what they're focusing on doesn't say much about Finland. It says something about Germany and about Japan and about Korea who reference Finland. And usually it's a sore point. Usually it's a point that is highly controversial in the, uh, their own context uh, that they then use references to other systems, in this case to Finland as a... Um, smallest common denominator or as a clinician. Right, right. Okay, that, that was a, a great rundown. I, I know uh, we, we don't have a, a whole lot of time with you today. Um, so just maybe a couple more, more questions. Uh, how, do, how are uh, policymakers using uh, policy borrowing uh, to legitimize their own sort of domestic uh, policies? Uh, and on the flip side, I think maybe it's the two sides of the same coin. Uh, when when policymakers uh, actually hide or it gets uh, thrown to the side, um, hiding where the origins come from the actual policy. Uh, can you kind of talk about these two phenomena? The first point is that's why the two fields have become so connected, globalization studies and studies on policy borrowing and lending. Mm -hmm. Because very often the argument is made by policymakers that the country is economically and in other terms falling behind, and I'm using this term in quotation marks, because that's how it is used, if uh, they don't catch up with international standards and if they don't look what's happening in other countries. Mm -hmm. So globalization is used as an argument Mm -hmm. for policy borrowing very often. And the argument is, and then this is like a zillion other you know, justifications such as the importance of knowledge society and looking at other knowledge societies to borrow policies that work. So the two are really have become interconnected because uh, that's an argument for policy borrowing and especially borrowing so-called international standards. I forgot the second question. Uh, I was uh, asking about uh, how policymakers or, or policy ends up coming out domestically and the origins 
are maybe from another country. They've become hidden or masked. One of them was an early dissertation at Teachers College, actually. One of my former students, Caroline Spreen, she's now at NYU. She looked at how, she she used the example of outcomes-based education in South Africa and showed that in the beginning, everyone was very proudly saying that they got the idea from Australia, they got the idea from Canada, from the U.S. It was like a mixture of standards-based education and outcomes-based education. But then when the criticism came, and it was like at the time where it was in the post-apartheid era, it was all about creating a new education space with new allies rather than looking back on a shameful past at the apartment Mm -hmm. regime, there was like a conscientious effort to go international. Mm -hmm. As part of going international and getting new allies, uh, there was active policy borrowing taking place to the extent that, you know, government officials were dispatched all over the world to go and look for, mm. it was like 19th century <laughs> policy borrowing in uh, Europe and uh, Japan and uh, other parts of the world. Mm. And there was a uh, conscientious effort made to borrow policies. However, once it was adopted, and every borrowing process is selective, it's, it's never wholesale borrowing, of course. But once it was adopted, it was presented as a homespun version in order to, as a selling point. Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't be criticized for, you know, blindly or uncritically borrowing something in other countries, from other countries, especially mm-hmm. because the same policy in other countries had to some extent also failed. <laughs> so you have to be careful uh, when you, as a policymaker, proudly announce that you uh, borrow something from a country that, uh, from another country. At one point it worked, but by the time you have borrowed and implemented mm-hmm. it, it may have failed. Yeah. So then you go native and you present it as homespun. And this was exactly what happened. Right. So, you know, policy borrowing is a process. In the beginning, very often references help to build coalition and help to generate reform pressure towards reform. But then after a while, it's really important and this happening over and over in all these empirical studies on policy borrowing and handling, it is often presented as homespun mm-hmm. and not at borrowed. Right. And, uh, and some of it, it is, I mean, is because of criticism that one has adopted something from mm-hmm. somewhere else. But some of it is also because it actually has been locally contextualized. Mm-hmm. So policy borrowing and handling research actually looks at this indigenization or local adaptation process. Like what happens when a reform is implemented? What parts resonate and are adopted? And what parts are newly added or modified and uh, locally adapted to the local? Okay, very good. Uh, And so we're, we're on a time crunch here, I know. Um, and, and, and if anyone out there in the audience is interested in reading this book, uh, there's, there's so much more that we, we couldn't have gotten to today. Uh, one of my favorite chapters, social network analysis, uh, on Chinese vocational education. That's, that's really great. Uh, there vertical horizontal comparisons. Uh, it's, it, it has a really, uh, wide array of, um, of analysis in here. So, Please go and look uh, for the book Policy or World Yearbook of Education 2012, 
policy borrowing and lending and education. Uh, and that's edited by Gita Steiner Crumsey and Florian Waldo. And one final question, if you don't mind, maybe, maybe briefly. Uh, what's next uh, for you uh, that on your horizon that you're that you're going to be researching and coming out? What I'm really interested in is um, because part of policy borrowing and lending is looking at reform packages, and the most recent turn of events is the fast advance of the global education industry, not only in the northern hemisphere but also in the global south. So I'm looking now together with Tony Verger and many others and Chris Lubinsky and at how standards benefit the global education and the industry and how, I mean, and from a critical perspective uh, and um, why policy borrowing and lending and best practices approach has really opened doors and gates for the education industry to mm -hmm. enter the field of education and how they use that to their own benefit. And some and very often with all the homogenizing effects that it has and the negative effects. Okay. Fantastic. We'll look for that, maybe another publication out of there. And uh, uh, to everyone on the New Books Network, uh, thank you for listening and uh, I hope you learned something.